Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. They're excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer. Here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate up for 90 days while you shop. But here's the crucial part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. If rates go down, your rate drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It is Friday, December 7th, and we're talking IPO and IDC. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by senior tech specialist, Evan New. Evan, what's going on? Not much. We have a holiday party going on this weekend. We're going to have some friends over, so that should be fun. I, too, am having a holiday party this weekend. <laughs> Look at that. I think it's like just early enough in December that it's not too close to like all the real craziness of the holidays. So everyone's like, oh, yeah, we'll do like the friend stuff, you know, this weekend. It's that time of the year. It's that time of the year. What's on the agenda for you guys? What are you going to be doing? Nothing too much. Just hanging out. Just open house. People can just come by as they as they want whenever they're free. So Got it. Pretty, I'm, chill. Pretty chill. Pretty chill. I, I'm doing something similar. We're going to do a little movie kind of thing early on in the day, get in the spirit, and then uh, decorate the tree that I have gotten with my roommates, our non-denominational holiday tree, <laughs> <laughs> um, because we are, we are a mixed household. Um, I'm excited for that. I'm excited to have some eggnog. I'm also excited, Evan, because we're getting the first inklings of a Lyft IPO, thanks to some news that came out earlier this week. That's right. Lyft announced that they, it's funny, they publicly announced that they made a confidential filing <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the SEC. So they now have filed their S1 registration statement with the SEC on a confidential basis. So it's really kind of the first step uh, towards an IPO, uh, which is probably going to come in early 2019 at this point. Yeah, and this is notable for a couple different reasons. I mean, this is a company that has been private for quite some time. You know, it's one of those unicorns that people have been watching for a while. Uh, they're also beating their competitor Uber to the public markets with this timeline, if it if it holds. And you know, we're we're seeing the confidential filing being used again. This is something investors have seen more and more of. Uh, let's unpack some of that because, you know, it seemed pretty clear that Uber would be going public at some point in 2019. Um, they also have some incentives to go public based on some of the deals that they've structured with SoftBank. Right, and I think that you know Lyft at this point being likely to go public first is pretty meaningful because not only are they upstaging Uber, but you know there is quite a bit of investor demand to get into this ride-hailing space, and pretty much all you know, it's really just Uber and Lyft does the main uh, ride-hailing companies. Uh, if you exclude, you know, before we talk about Waymo and Google and Alphabet, uh, as far as pure plays go, it's really Uber and Lyft, and I think there is quite a bit of pent-up investor demand and interest in this space. So whoever can get out there first, you know, might be able to capitalize on some of that pent-up demand being let loose and investors for the first time being you know, having a chance to get into this space. And as the smaller player too, right? I mean, Lyft is the clear number two in ride hailing. They're about a fifth of the size of Uber. For them to go public, enjoy all of the name recognition that comes with that, all of the PR, all of the press, uh, that that might help with some adoption here in the U.S. and Canada, uh, where they where they compete with Uber and and really help them close the gap. You know, I mean, they have a long ways to go to make that happen, but I have to imagine going public will help a bit. Right, absolutely. In terms of brand awareness, you're absolutely right because uh, you know Uber is much more prominent. You know, in more markets around the world, you know, as you mentioned, they're a lot bigger. So Lyft is really just kind of a in the U.S. and Canada, they don't really have a lot of brand recognition outside of North America. So this will, will certainly probably raise that awareness a little bit. 
unfortunately, we are kind of grasping at straws for what Lyft's financials look like. Uh, details are a bit scarce right now. You mentioned this confidential filing. Um, I think a lot of people probably don't understand what that means and why companies are allowed to do this. So, just as a little primer and, and something that you can kind of stow away, because you're going to see this more and more. Uh, confidential filings are a relatively new thing. Uh, it was something that was opened up as part of the Obama-era Jobs Act. And ideally, it was supposed to be used for small companies, ones that have less than a billion dollars in revenue, uh, to confidentially file a draft registration with the SEC months and months before going public. And the idea there is they wouldn't be opening up their books to public scrutiny, scrutiny before deciding to go public and making that step. Once they did that, all the all the paperwork would become available 15 days before the company would begin its IPO roadshow. And like I said, this started with small companies as part of the Jobs Act. Uh, mid-2017, the SEC decided, we're going to just eliminate that cap on $1 billion in revenue. And you're seeing all of these larger companies doing that now. Right, and I think Lyft certainly qualifies in there since, you know, they are above a billion dollars in annual revenue, so they're taking full advantage of that new yeah. requirement. Yeah, and and when you're in a space where you have such a clear competitor in Uber, it totally makes sense that you don't want to have to show them your books and your key business metrics. Right, I mean, for for private companies, I mean, keeping the books kind of under wraps is a pretty big, pretty important, particularly when you talk about the, uh, you know this type of competitive space. Yeah, so so big picture, the confidential filing, uh, it is not a shady thing. Uh, this is something that was passed, like I said, during the Obama administration as kind of a pro-business thing, making it a little bit easier, a little bit less intimidating for small companies to wade into the pool of going public and starting to have those conversations with the SEC. Now, I mean, is it great for investor transparency? Not necessarily. Uh, I think, ultimately, the companies that do wind up going public will wind up providing all the necessary paperwork, and people are going to be getting it well ahead of when the companies start their roadshow and start approaching investors anyways. So, it, it's a timing thing more than anything else. You'd like to have the information, of course, but uh, it, it isn't anything to be too concerned with. Right. I think that the timing of the this is, is kind of important, too, because you know, when they first passed the Jobs Act, it was 2012. And you know, with that billion-dollar limit, you know, the the goal was to basically you know get these startups to really consider going public more. You know, startups are an important part of the economy that you know have have a lot of jobs. But you know, I think that what they didn't really foresee was the age of the unicorns sprouting that we've seen in the recent years, where you have all these companies that are really you know becoming quite large but staying private. So I think that's kind of the context of why they've you know changed this limit uh, to allow these larger companies to take advantage of the confidential process like you mentioned. Yeah, and looking at the slate of potential 2019 and 2020 IPOs, I mean, we're just going to see more and more of this. You know, there's Uber, Lyft, Palantir, Airbnb. There are a ton of really big, highly coveted private companies out there now that are probably considering an IPO at some point soon. So, investors, you're going to see this confidential filing come up again. That's what it means. Um, in talking about this and in kind of prepping for the show, I threw out there on Twitter uh, that we we're going to be talking about the Lyft IPO and was just curious if anyone had any questions. We have one from listener Austin, and he asks, not sure anyone saw the Lyft, uh, Lyft IPO happening before Uber. Which company is the better company? Um, and Evan, I mean, we might think that they're kind of synonymous because a lot of people use them interchangeably, but these are two totally different companies. Right. I mean, not only in terms of size, but you know, they there are also some some pretty big strategic differences, particularly with how they're approaching autonomous driving over the past year. I mean, Uber has just had such a tumultuous 
you know, experience with, with self-driving, trying to develop self-driving cars. You know, they had this whole trade secret thing where they reportedly hired the Google engineer and he stole a bunch of stuff. And then they, they had one lady die from one of their autonomous driving. And so they've really pulled back quite a bit on their investments in self-driving vehicles. Uh, whereas Lyft is trying to expand more and, and it keeps pushing more and more. And that's going to be a, a pretty core differentiator long-term. I mean, super long-term because we're nowhere near close to actually having self-driving cars. Yeah, it's it's a key element to the long term thesis for both of these companies. Um, we don't have a ton to go on here in terms of company financials to do an apples and apples comparison. Uh, if you want some of the highlights, though, you can look and see. Okay, Uber, they're international. They're in over sixty countries. Lyft is focused in the U.S. and Canada. Um, Uber has some other businesses. They also uh, do Uber Eats, and they have a freight business. Lyft is. Pretty much focused on ride hailing and some of the micro mobility stuff that John Rosevere and Nick Seipel were talking about actually on yesterday's show. So if you want a little primer on that space, definitely check that out. Um, Uber also kind of has some brand baggage associated with it. You know, they they have moved away from the Travis Kalanick era uh, where there were just a lot of problems with the corporate culture there, with <laughs> with some of the things you mentioned with the corporate espionage uh, with Google. Um, I, Lyft doesn't have that. Lyft is like this nice, soft, and fuzzy brand. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, I'm not a big user of ride-hailing services in general because I live in, in the suburbs. Um, but I will say that in general, um, Uber, we, my wife and I, like, we absolutely refuse to use Uber whatsoever, even when we're traveling or when we do need to use ride-hailing locally, especially because of that brand baggage that you mentioned. I mean, they, their ethics, their internal culture and ethics under Kalanick were just so horrendous in terms of just the cutthroat, Things they would do with competitors, you know, their internal culture with women and like the misogyny. I mean, there's just a whole long list of things that is not worth covering right now since it's so long. <laughs> but you know, I personally will not use Uber. I, I will use Lyft, and we'll use Lyft whenever we need to. But you know, and speaking of brand baggage, I mean, it, the, I, we we just don't use it. There are though plenty of people that are happy to use Uber. I think there are a lot of people that look at the price and say, you know, what's the better price? What's the better fare? Um, some context around what we do know for the books of these two companies: uh, Uber did 2.7 billion in revenue in Q2 of 2018, which is up 51% year over year, and they are posting adjusted EBITDA losses of around 400 million on that revenue. Uh, Lyft in the first half of 2018 did somewhere in the neighborhood of 900 million in revenue. Up 120% year over year, and posted a net loss of 370 million on that. Neither of these businesses are profitable. Both are growing very quickly. Those growth rates, though, and and the revenue bases really speak to the size of these two companies. It's kind of a Coke and Pepsi dynamic. Right. I mean, that's one of th one thing that jumps out to me is like how much money these companies lose for operating, you know, a fairly capital light business. I mean, they're just operating a platform. But I've always looked at ride hailing in its current state. It's kind of like it's subsidized by venture capitalists because they offer these rides for so cheap that are below cost, which is why they have to raise so much money. I mean, Uber has raised twenty five billion dollars over twenty one rounds. Lyft has raised like five billion. So I mean, these companies just they, they just devour so much capital. And it's really kind of hard to justify why. I mean, of course, you know, if you're investing in autonomous cars and stuff, that makes sense. But even the core operations, I, I think, I mean, we'll get more detail whenever they actually start showing the, us the books. But my sense is they're still losing a lot of money up front. Yeah, I think Austin will get his more responsible and direct answer from us down the road when we can really look at both of these companies. Uh, what I will say, though, is 
the future is so dependent on autonomous vehicles for both of them. Uh, you know, the idea that they can dramatically bring their cost structure down by having a fleet of autonomous vehicles and not having to pay drivers uh, makes the numbers look a lot better for this kind of business. And you know, you think, okay, there might be a relatively easy path to that, but no. I mean, this is an incredibly competitive space. And just as a case in point for that, Alphabet's driverless car company Waymo announced Waymo One this week, and this is a commercial ride-hailing service. They're piloting it in the Phoenix metro area, and rides are going to be carried out with uh, a safety driver. But this is another step towards self-driving cars taking hold. And it, Alphabet is not a company that needs to win self-driving cars to, to have their future work out. They have way more money than Uber or Lyft possibly can, and they're beating both of them to market in autonomy. Right. And I mean, the longer term, it's just it's so uncertain who's going to actually get to full autonomy first, like level five autonomy, because it's just such a tough challenge to tackle from a technical standpoint. I mean, some companies using LiDAR, most companies using LiDAR, but some are trying without LiDAR. And it's not clear who's, you know, what approach is actually going to get people there first. And, and then on top of that, then you have to turn around and look at how you're actually going to you know, create a business model out of it. Yeah, and then you know GM is in there with Cruise. Ford has its own mobility play. It is a crowded space. You have a lot of players with a lot of different incentives. Uh, like you say, I mean, whoever cracks autonomy first is is really going to be the one who drives the way this industry goes. It's a hard business either way. Uh, you'll get more details from us as we get the company financials. Um, but you know, if if you do nothing else, I think if you're not an Alphabet shareholder, you know that that's a pretty easy way to access this market, uh, and you have the backing of a rock-solid monopoly to just throw off cash while they invest in this kind of stuff. You know, I, as an Alphabet shareholder, I'm happy to say, okay, well, you know, if this winds up becoming something that contributes to an already strong ad business, awesome, um, because they're the leader in this space right now. Right. So, just kind of have to wait and see. I mean, I'm personally not interested in either Lyft or Uber because of everything we just mentioned, but uh, it'll be interesting to look through the numbers when they finally give us some. Yeah, I cannot wait. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wait until 2019. Um, all right, on the back half of the show, we're going to talk about some recent data from IDC on the wearables and VR markets. But before we get over to that discussion, support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute. Because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home these days. It's the kind of thing that can cause a lot of anxiety for folks. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process. Here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. That's going to give you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new exclusive rate shield approval. First, they'll lock your rate up for 90 days while you shop. But here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. All right, Evan, not to be outdone on the news front, we have some fresh data from market research firm IDC on wearables and VR. And 
I really love checking these out. I think it's a great at a glance for what's going on in the consumer tech space. Uh, this firm does such a good job giving people like the five thousand foot view. Right. I mean, these are really exciting markets just in general, and you know, getting you know, th- this data on these estimates and how how it's going is a really useful tool for investors to see, like you know, when they're looking at their their investments and the, their companies that are playing and participating in these markets. So, I mean, wearables is is a particularly fun one since you know wearable tech is kind of a, a nascent category that's still on the up and up. Uh, so, what we saw this in the third quarter was that basic trackers returned to growth. You know, those kind of Fitbit you know fitness trackers, uh, thanks largely to new product launches in emerging markets where you know, basic trackers are still pretty popular in emerging markets because they're more affordable. Uh, the U.S. market was actually kind of flat in the third quarter because that market is already transitioning from first-time purchases towards replacements and upgrades, which is actually, you know, in my opinion, sooner than I would have expected. One of my favorite things in looking at these reports, though, is who's moving where uh, in terms of market share. You know, We get to see the competitive landscape, and that's always fun. Uh, what did you see there, Evan? So this quarter we saw Xiaomi reclaim number one. Uh, Apple had been number one for the past two quarters thanks to its Apple Watch, but Xiaomi's Mi Band 3, which is a basic tracker, uh, has has been selling really well. So they're able actually uh, to take number one for the in the third quarter. Uh, but if you look at smartwatches specifically, and you exclude basic trackers, Apple is still number one. And in terms of the Apple Watch, they launched a Series 4 at the very end of the quarter. Uh, so they only had about 10 days left in the quarter when Apple Watch 4 launched, uh, but they also discounted Apple Watch 3. So that actually that, that lower price point has also been helping drive demand and drive unit volumes. And you know, Series 3 expectedly was the majority of units, but according to IC, IDC's estimates, uh, the Series 4 was actually almost 20% of unit volumes in just 10 days. So I think that shows how strong the demand for uh, Series 4 was at launch. That's pretty incredible. Um, we we can't talk about the wearable space. Without also talking about Fitbit, you know, we've given Apple Watch its time. What's going on with Fitbit in this report? So Fitbit has been has become the number two player with primarily with its Versa smartwatch, which is much more approachable. It's a little bit cheaper, uh, and that's what we've seen play out over the past couple of quarters. I mean, you and I, you and I have covered their earnings a couple of times, so we've seen this coming. Uh, and I think the the good news for Fitbit is that IDC expects them to kind of keep that number two status in the smartwatch market, uh, mostly because as we mentioned in previous shows, I mean Android Wear or Wear OS uh, is really just not competitive, and no one's really buying those devices. Um, so we need. Some you know, the market still wants some alternative to the Apple Watch, and Fitbit has stepped up to, to provide it. Yeah, uh, it's probably good for consumers to have a couple different options out there, right? It's nice to have some competition. Nice to have a little bit of a push on the feature side to keep innovating. Right, and I mean, the big thing that IDC points out is that you know, healthcare is really becoming a, a core part of this market, and Apple and Fitbit are both really pushing towards these you know, digital health platforms in their own different ways. Um, now, you know, who gets there first and who can really build the most robust platform is you know, an, an open question and it remains to be seen, but certainly Apple has a lot more money to kind of invest in building it. But that is going to be a pretty big thing to watch going forward is you know, the, the underlying platform of these devices. Okay, so so thinking about this market though, you have the the low end and the high end. Um, it sounds like any hardware profits are going to be made on the smartwatch side. Uh, you know, the maybe market share gains are going to be happening with the cheaper end of the market. Uh, you know, how do those factor into the health solutions that these folks are looking for? You know, is it that if we want to track who's going to have the better health platform, we should be looking at the high end smartwatch sales? Right. I mean, you know, the basic trackers, they're just so limited in the amount of data they can collect. So I think, you know, 
it, the, the, the value that people are putting into the actual platform will also determine what kind of device they're interested in. And if you look longer term, I mean, smartwatch prices have been coming down quite a bit. You know, I mean, Apple does this thing and they've been using the same strategy for the iPhone for many years where they extend the overall life cycle of a product by selling the same product over years and years, but they just lower the price over time. So as those prices keep coming down, the, the difference between like going out and buying a basic tracker or buying a smartwatch, even if it's like a previous generation smartwatch, will keep getting smaller and smaller. And as that gap shrinks, more and more people will be willing to you know make the move up market into a smartwatch that is more capable, can do a lot more things, can collect more health data, and give you more value out of those health platforms. Yeah, it doesn't feel like as much of an upfront investment, right? Right, exactly. And, and I mean, especially if the difference is small. I mean, if I mean, if the difference between a basic tracker and a smartwatch is twenty or fifty dollars, which one would you pick? Right. <laughs> uh, I think upfront investment might be the perfect way to segue into the VR and AR discussion because this is a market where I think a lot of people have been very excited for a very long time. You know, it's it's a sexy idea, the idea of virtual reality. Um, the reality of virtual reality is. A lot of the rigs are expensive, and a lot of the computing uh, needs to really power this stuff are also fairly expensive. Uh, what does adoption look like there? What did you glean from the report? All right, people like looking at VR because it's so sci-fi. Right? <laughs> I mean, the, the VR market has been declining for about four consecutive quarters. So it finally returned to growth in the third quarter, according to IDC's numbers, with 8% growth. There were 1.9 million units sold worldwide. And kind of like what we're seeing in the wearables market, you know, the falling prices and the discounts are really helping to spur unit volumes as in both consumer and enterprise markets because it just makes it cheaper to, for people to give it a try. So in, in the wearables market, we have the um, very limited functionality bands, and then we have the smartwatches. In VR, we have screenless viewers, tethered headsets, standalone headsets. What's going on within those spaces? So screenless viewers, which is those kind of accessories that you strap a phone to your face, which is kind of not a great experience, but the... those volumes are getting crushed. I mean, those volumes are down 60% almost. Uh, but those, I, I don't think it's too surprising because those products have never been that compelling to begin with. It's, it's really just a really cheap way for users to explore a really rudimentary VR experience. And there's also not really a lot of potential for innovation because it's just accessory, whereas the phone itself is the primary device delivering the VR. Um, so, you know, companies aren't really working too hard on this category, so it's not really you know too surprising to see the volumes dropping here. Yeah, I've always thought of it as kind of like the gateway to VR. You know, maybe it's the first way that some people experience any VR interaction. You know, you have like the Google Cardboard type product where you pop it in, it costs, you know, it was like 10 bucks or something like that. I mean, I remember being at trade shows and people literally give them away, you know, as a way to like build brand buzz and things like that. Um, But you're like, oh, this is neat. And then it collects (laughs) dust on your desk for, you know, a year. So so I can see why that category might be getting crushed. Uh, what about some of the more involved stuff? So the tethered headsets, which are the ones where you you know you have the headset, but you're, you still have to plug into like a high-powered PC. Uh, that, that market is still pretty solid, sold over a million units for the second time ever. Sony is the clear leader with a PSVR. Uh, they had sold almost half a million units. Uh, and they have a pretty big advantage here because they've sold over 80 million PS4 gaming consoles to date. So that's a pretty large installed base of people that already have the, the kind of big 
hardware that you need, and then the PSVR is you know small accessory that you know you buy on top of that. Uh, whereas you know compared to a PC-based virtual reality like Facebook's Oculus Rift, uh, the Rift itself is kind of expensive, but also you need to buy a gaming PC that is you know eight hundred dollars or more. Uh, so that's a pretty expensive you know setup to do. I mean there are, is clearly a market for it of enthusiasts that are really big into it, and most of the applications are still gaming. Uh, but I think that market is still still doing pretty solid. It's kind of funny because Oculus is the Kleenex of VR. You know, I think if you were to ask someone to just name a VR rig, that would be the one that they'd throw out there. Yeah, and they're, they're number two. I mean, they sold about 300,000 units in the quarter. So they're they're second behind Sony, and then number third behind them is HTC. So, uh, you know, three, three main players here. Something that I was kind of surprised by looking at this report is um, how AR hasn't taken the way that I was kind of hoping it might. You know, I, I look at... VR, and I say, okay, um, it's immersive. It's it's wholly immersive. AR is is kind of a hybrid there, uh, and yet it is still a very small portion of the market of this combined AR VR space. Right. I mean, AR is still only about three percent of the market, and kind of like the early VR stuff that we were talking about with the with the accessories, like AR primarily is being delivered through phones these days. You know, we have Apple and Google really pushing AR technology with uh, on their own platforms to allow developers to create these experiences that are all through your phone. I mean, you use your phone as like a viewfinder. Um, and as far as like pure AR he- headsets go, there aren't really a lot of players. It's really like Lenovo and Microsoft. Lenovo sells this one headset that's very limited. There's like just one Star Wars game. Uh, Microsoft has its HoloLens, which you know there's been a lot of buzz around, but it's still only available to developers, and it costs three thousand dollars. <laughs> uh, you know, so longer term, I think you know Facebook and Apple are reportedly working on these dedicated AR headsets. And as we've talked about before, Tim Cook has talked about the potential of augmented reality extensively, and he really thinks it's like a game changing technology. So we know that Apple's investing heavily in it. We just don't know when they're going to do something. Well, your point about AR and that headset costing $3,000, I mean, that has been the struggle with this category in general, right? Is it's expensive uh, and people don't necessarily want to lay out that kind of money for something that the content uh, isn't there yet. You know, the, the entertainment experience isn't quite there yet. I mean, think about how many things you drop several thousand dollars on uh, to just purely enjoy, maybe a TV every couple of years. Um, I've long kind of held the idea that the real most visible adoption of AR is going to happen with phones. And, uh, you know, it, it hasn't really happened in a way that's all that functional or all that helpful yet. You know, I think right. most of the AR experiences that people have on phones are emojis or filters, you know, on like Snap. Uh, they, they aren't really these like really helpful at a glances or you know layers onto whatever you're looking at that can help you make sense of something. Right. I mean, if, if, and of course, you have to mention Google Glass from like years ago, which was just <laughs> so ahead of its time. But yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that the use cases that are really killer use cases aren't there yet. But I think, you know, that being said, I, I think it's really kind of exciting if you look at some of the stuff that these developers are making. Um, I saw one the other day where, you know, it, there was like a photorealistic shoe i mean they're selling shoes some some product you know demo type thing but it looked photorealistic it was kind of crazy how good it looked and there's just a lot of these like glimpses that we're seeing of what developers are working on that do have a lot of promise and potential for the future uh, but i definitely agree that it's not quite there yet to to the point where you it would warrant someone buying a, a dedicated ar headset for everyday use it's just not there yet so to recap all of this, uh, it sounds like Sony is continuing to do what it needs to do to further VR in the gaming space. 
for some of the other big tech names, expect AR and, and maybe some idea of VR to play into hardware that people maybe already have or to future product lines. But, you know, a company like Apple, you know, it's not it's not playing into the strategy in a very visible way right now. All right, but they are, you know, putting the groundwork for eventually. I mean, they're doing the right thing with getting the content and getting people kind of used to the idea first, which paves the way for eventual adoption of a dedicated headset later on. Do you think that we will see something AR or VR related from Apple before we see Uber and Lyft go public, Evan? <laughs> no, I think it'll probably be like you know three to five years or so, but you know, definitely not 2019. Would not expect that. Uh, I guess we'll just have to keep waiting. That's just the way things go. Uh, Evan, thanks for hopping on today's show. Thanks for having me. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you want to catch more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or get us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also catch videos from the show over at YouTube. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.